Thank you for joining the Once Changing the World, which is India's first Future Tech Meets Sustainability podcast. And today, I'm delighted and honored to have with me Professor Isaac Chen, who's a neurosurgeon at the Presbyterian Medical Center of Philadelphia and the Veterans Administration Medical Center. Uh, he heads the Chen Laboratory, which works at developing novel methods for restoring the function of the brain after it has been damaged by combining aspects of stem cell biology, neural tissues engineering, and neural interface technologies. Professor Chen is the member of Center for Brain Injury and Repair, Institute of Regenerative Medicine, Institute for Translational Medicine and Therapeutics, and Center for Neuroengineering and Therapeutics. So Professor, it's a complete pleasure and honor to have you on the show. I'm going to directly well, just so jump I'm just going to directly jump jump dive into the news you know which I mean which I just read about you know the brain organoids so so before we get into you know how you transplanted a neuron into a rat brain uh, we'll appreciate if you kind of talk about what is a brain organoid first and how do you create it yeah so uh, the the current version of brain organoids um, uh, started in the early 2010s and basically the idea is that uh, we're able to create um, a, a, neuro, a, a tissue in the laboratory from stem cells that mimics what the real organ looks like. So, so organoids are not limited to just brain organoids. You can make lung organoids or intestinal organoids or kidney organoids. And, and all these different organoid technologies are based off of the same idea, the same uh, organizing principle, which is that you can take a cluster of stem cells. These are pluripotent stem cells, meaning that they can become any different type of uh, cell in the body. And you can feed these stem cells a recipe. And that recipe instructs the stem cells to become a type of cell uh, and to become a specific type of tissue, much in the same way that each of us um, you know, developed uh, in our mother's womb. Um, you know, we all started as one cell, an egg and a sperm come to, coming together. And, and that cell divided many, many, many times to create all sorts of different tissues. And over the, the years, um, through developmental neurobiology, uh, many of the, the, the signals that control how these different tissues develop in our bodies have been, have been figured out by scientists. And so we can use that knowledge to create these recipes to instruct stem cells in a lab to become similar to certain types of tissue. They're not perfect replicas, of obviously, um, but they get pretty darn close. So you're saying you take a stem cell, turn it into a pluripotent stem cell, put it in a PT dish, put in, you know, instruct it to kind of, you know, grow, and then it becomes these organs and it's not restricted to just the brain. It could turn into anything, a, a kidney, a lung, or, or whatever. When you say you're building a brain organoid, I mean, we'll be we sticking to brain organoid at this point in time. If you're mm -hmm. doing that, how how close it is to a brain? How what what's the neuron size? What what's the uh, could you, could, how yeah, functional so, is it? So so it, I, I think it is important to emphasize that you know these organoids are not replicas of the actual organ. There's still a lot of work that needs to be done to refine the technology of creating these organoids. Um, that being said, like I said, there, there are many aspects of these brain organoids that come very close to what the brain looks like. Um, in talking about brain organoids, there's kind of two categories. 
The first category are what we call whole brain organoids. Um, these organoids are organoids that have features of different parts of the brain all together at once. So, um, you know, they have some parts that resemble what we call the cerebral cortex, which is the, you know, one of the largest parts of the human brain, as well as other parts like the, um, the, the cerebellum in the back of the brain and, and the hippocampus and all sorts of other features of the brain. They're, they're all a little bit disorganized, but you have those different groups of cells. Um, the other group of organoids are called region-specific organoids. And so in this case, you are creating an organoid just resembling one part of the brain. So you can have a cortical organoid that looks like the cerebral cortex. You can have a hippocampal organoid that looks like the hippocampus. You have a cerebellar organoid that replicates the cerebellum. Now, all of these are relatively small. Um, we're talking about something on the order of a couple of millimeters right now. All right. Um, and there are various reasons for that. Um, but when you look at these organoids, what's really, really interesting is that the types of neurons that develop are appropriate for that particular, specifically talk about region-specific organoids. So the cell types are, are, are appropriate for that part of the brain. And you start to see some sort of structure develop. That structure, again, is, is reminiscent of what you see in the brain. So as an example, for cortical organoids, the cerebral cortex, uh, you know, what, 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 what students might learn in basic neurobiology is it has six different layers. And, and the cells in each of those six different layers have different functions in terms of how they're connected with other parts of the brain, other parts of the cortex. And um, they develop in this particularly interesting way where it's called inside-out development. Um, you develop the lower layers first, and then the upper layers kind of develop later and crawl past the lower layers to, to create the upper layers. And, and so you see that type of organization start to develop in cortical organoids. We start to see rudimentary layers. They, 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 the layers are generated in the right timeline in terms of the lower layers being formed first and the upper layers forming later and kind of this upper layer cells crawling past the lower layer. So all these different features, you start to see that in these, in these organoids. And, and in my mind, um, organoids recreate the brain better than any other technology that's currently available in the lab. Um, and, and, and that's why there's such interesting things to study. Lovely. How cool is this? Again, I mean, my mind is blown because you're saying uh, you could take my stem cell and, and you could, in a PT dish, create a organoid, whether it's brain, mm -hmm. whether it, it's, it, it, it will be my brain, my, yes. with right? Now, yes. you, you mentioned there's two types of it. One is whole brain organoid, and the second is region-specific organoid. We are sitting in 2023. A, when do you think we could create something which is like really consequential that we can learn from it so much that we can start thinking about leveraging it to maybe solve some of those really huge neurological disorders that we face. Let me just back up before answering that particular question, what you had mentioned uh, earlier in terms of, yes, we can take your stem cells to create uh, various types of organoids and tissues in a lab. You know, I think one of the holy grails of uh, regenerative medicine is this idea that all of us have within us the, 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 the ability to, to create 
our own backup cells and tissues, right? So at this point, it's already uh, possible. You can do a blood draw from a person and from the cells in that blood, you can create pluripotent stem cells. So these are called induced pluripotent stem cells. And from those induced pluripotent stem cells, you should be able to create cells or organoids for any part of the body. Um, and, and this is not science fiction, to be honest. There are already clinical trials across the world where patients are getting stem cells created from either, you know, the blood or, or skin biopsy or something like that, creating cells off of them. In this case, uh, you know, the ones I know most uh, well about are for Parkinson's disease. So you create dopamine producing neurons from these stem cells, this patient's own stem cells, then putting those dopamine producing cells back into the patient to try to treat the Parkinson's disease. This is not science fiction. This has been done. Um, and, 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 you know, in this field of regenerative medicine, the whole drive is to see how, how much farther, how much further can we push this idea? Um, so, so, you know, answering the question that you pose in terms of when can we start using this technology to start to answer questions, I would say probably right now, um, it's not something that we're wait, we have to wait into the future for, you know, it's something that is, is right now or just right, right around the corner. Um, the, one of the ideas of developing the, probably the biggest idea behind developing brain organoids is that you can start to really understand neurological disease, um, especially those diseases that come about uh, when the development of the brain goes wrong. Um, so, you know, there are efforts across the world right now where scientists are creating stem cells from patients with genetic disorders that affect the brain. And from those stem cells are growing organoids and comparing them to organoids uh, grown from stem cells of healthy patients and comparing the two and trying to understand what are the differences um, and, and can you get more insight into the mechanisms of what goes wrong in this disease and start to think about what are therapies that can develop off of that knowledge. So that is happening now. Um, and, and, and there are, you know, papers coming out uh, every, every week, every month um, along that line. And, and so, yes, I think we're using this technology now. Every answer you give me, my mind is actually blown <laughs> because of the cutting edge of technology of what is happening, you know, and, and, you know, if you extrapolate it, maybe five years, 10 years down the line, I, I mean, uh, the entire healthcare industry can get completely upended. You know, today, I think the largest problem we facing as humanity is depression, you know, because because of the undue stress we keep on striking because of the rat race that we are in, you know, to acquire more capital, you know, more wealth, you know, that that that's that's like a loop because the more we do that, the more stress we take. And, and, mm -hmm. and I think the entire world is, you know, getting into that, you know, depressed uh, van. Now, you spoke about regional medicine you spoke you mentioned that in uh, us we have the capability of regenerating or maybe possibly all of our organs and the tissues but somewhere down the line possibly you lost it and we but there are lots of animals which which can still do that how close are we to possibly you know maybe create through this stem cell induced pluripotent stem cells you know whole organs because organ transplantation because it's a huge huge problem right. because the entire world is waiting yeah 
Yeah, so I, I I think that if we're talking about being able to grow a whole organ in the lab, that's still pretty far off. And and there are other efforts ongoing right now to see whether or not um, there might be shorter ways of, of getting to that goal, of creating more organs that are available for transplantation. So as an example, technologies are being developed where there are animals like a pig or something like that that is created where um, they have a specific organ grown in them that is all composed of human cells. So the, the, the animal is a pig, but the liver or the kidney is a human liver or kidney. Um, and, and, you know, it's already the case right now that various animal, uh, 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 not so much organs, but, 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 you know, anatomical, um, parts of, of an animal are used in medicine, um, either as artificial skin or artificial heart valves and things like that. So that already exists, but this takes it to the next level where you're talking about, um, you know, being able to, to take an organ from an animal that is human, the cells are human, um, but it's grown in an animal and using that. Now, you know, all these things have ethical concerns that you have to think about in terms of the welfare of the animal and 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 is it a right thing to do? But that from a from a purely scientific perspective, that is probably going to yield organs sooner than to say completely lab grown. Can we, you know, create these organs? And I think that's going to take a lot longer. One of the issues from that perspective is that, and I think this affects not just brain organoids, but all, all organoid technology is this issue of blood supply. You know, the organoids that we have right now, they get fed by nutrients and, and growth factors and things like that in the media that they're, the, 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 the liquid that they're growing in. Um, but that's guided by the, you know, physical principles of diffusion. Uh, you can only get so far into a tissue um, by having these molecules diffuse into to, to kind of move into the tissue. And, and, you know, the reason we have blood vessels is so that we can get nutrients and gas and all these other things um, to much larger um, pieces of tissue like our bodies. Right. And, and so, you know, in order to grow larger organoids that look more like organs, I think one of the biggest challenges challenges is, try, is to figure out how can we provide nutrients to these larger pieces of tissue without the center of it starting to die. Um, so so those, those challenges will take some time to overcome, which is why I think that lab-grown organs will take some time. Can, can you explain your research, you know, and the re results possibly obtained from the study on transplanting, you know, lab-grown organized yeah. uh, uh, into rats? Sure. So, so as you mentioned in your introduction, I'm a neurosurgeon, I'm a clinician. Uh, I spend you know, a part of my time taking care of patients and the other part of my time in the laboratory working on um, uh, questions of how we develop new treatments for patients. And, and one of the biggest issues in the clinical neurosciences is that patients can have damage to the brain from a whole different type of reasons. You know, that can be trauma, it can be stroke, it can be a degenerative disease, um, and the brain does have some ability to restore function. So if a patient has a stroke or brain injury or something else, you can do rehabilitation and patients can get better to some degree, but many times it's incomplete. Um, and, and, you know, uh, the numbers I know are more specific for the United States, but between stroke and traumatic brain injury, uh, there are 11 million 
people in the United States that have problems associated with it, neurological problems associated with it. And there's not much else we can do for those patients. And so, you know, my goal as a clinician is ultimately to try to figure out, can we come up with new treatment strategies to fix these neurological problems in patients with trauma, traumatic brain injury, stroke, degenerative disease, all these different things. And, and to be honest, there's not much out there right now. Like as, as a clinician, as, as a surgeon, I can't do too much to help these patients recover. Um, so it's wide open right now in terms of trying to figure out how we can fix these patients. Um, and, and, and there's a lot of people that are working on this particular problem because it's such a big problem. And, and there's a lot of different strategies. Um, one strategy is that we might be able to uh, rewrite, rewrite the software of the brain, so to speak, by kind of uh, stimulating with electricity to try to uh, get what's still left there to work better in the brain. But it may be the case that some injuries are so extensive or severe that no matter how much you try to rewrite the software code, uh, it's not enough. If you had a computer, you pulled out all these circuit boards and everything like that, at some point, no matter how slick of a computer code that you write, the computer's not gonna work. So in those cases, you probably have to put back processors or chips or you know boards into the computer. And so that's the kind of idea that we're, we're pursuing in the lab right now. If the brain doesn't have enough neurons or processing power, maybe we have to add more back to the brain. Um, and in thinking how best to do this, one of the principles that my lab has been um, working on is that a tissue with some structure to it might be better than just individual cells uh, that you put in the brain. The brain has such exquisite architecture and structure. And, and you know, over the many decades of, of work done by neuroscientists, it's been shown that that structure oftentimes informs how the brain itself actually works. And so if we're gonna fix the brain, as well as we can, we probably have to fix the structure, not just provide more cells, more neurons. And so that's why we, we were looking at neural tissues and ultimately landed on brain organoids. As we talked about earlier, brain organoids do develop this structure. It's not perfect, but it's probably the best that we have of something that we can create in the brain. You might say, okay, well, the best option uh, in terms of a tissue for transplantation is the brain itself. So can't you just take some piece of a brain from somewhere else and put it into uh, a patient? And that has been tried before. Um, uh, there, there's quite an extensive um, list of papers from Europe where they took pieces of brain from um, a baby rat and put it into an adult rat and showed that, yes, that piece of, of tissue can become part of the brain. Um, but there's a lot of ethical concerns about that. Uh, you know, where do you get the, where do you get this, this, this fetal tissue? Um, and, you know, so, so I, I think that the next best thing is to create something in a lab with structure. And in my mind, again, brain organoids are the best option right now. Um, and so that's why we chose to use brain organoids. And, and, and what we were interested in was seeing these brain organoids created from human stem cells to what degree can they become part of another brain? Now, we're not gonna do this in patients right away. So we chose to use an animal model, um, the, the standard lab rat, to see what happens when you take this organoid and put it into the rat brain, what happens after that?
So, so would, would you like to elaborate on what happened? Because you've done the research, yeah. you've inserted. Yeah. Right. So, so, you know, this took a long time to put all these pieces together, but um, so just, you know, starting at the most basic part, you know, once you put these organoids into the rat brain and they do survive. And, and one of the really cool things is that we uh, had these organoids express green fluorescent protein just to tag those cells. And so when we opened things up after we had transplanted the organoids a couple months later, you could use a, a UV light, a black light, shine it on the brain and you could see the organoid light up in green. It was pretty cool. Um, and, and so they survive. And we did a couple of different, different, uh, I'm sorry, a couple of different um, experiments to show that the organoid neurons were connecting to the rat brain with synapses, the, the communications, uh, the, the way that neurons communicate with each other. And so there was a structural connection, but also beyond the structural connection, the organoids were functionally becoming part of the rat brain. Um, so just to explain that a little bit more, in order to show that there was a structural connection, we made use of viruses and viruses naturally can spread in the brain and cause infections because they can jump from neuron to neuron through these synapses, the, you know, these, these, these clefts that allow neurons to communicate. Um, and so we use these viruses as a scientific tool and show that if we um, put the virus into the eye of the animal, you could see that there were connections in the organoid. So the eye had a direct pathway to the organoid, all right? And then to show there's a functional connection, we had the animal, the animal was anesthetized, it was asleep, but we had a screen, a computer screen showing different types of visual stimulation. And that was projected onto the animal's eye, which was open. The rats don't really have eyelids that close, so it was open. And we had electrodes in the organoid recording what was happening. And we saw evidence that the organoid was responding specifically to the light. And so that suggested that the organoid had become part of the visual system of the animal. Wow, how cool is that? So here is this human brain organoid, which you inserted into a rat brain, and it's integrated both functionally as well as structurally. That's awesome. right. Now, right. now so, so, you know, talk to me about, you know, when you do this, what are, are, uh, what are the learnings from this? And through this, what are the brain injuries or, or the problems that possibly that you'll be able to solve maybe understanding this? It's It's been held for a long time in neuroscience that the adult brain is less uh, what we call plastic. It's less able to adapt than uh, a, a younger brain. And and that's definitely the case for, for humans. You know, children that have a problem with their brain from an injury, they're more likely to recover than someone in their 20s and 30s, who is more likely to recover than someone who's in their 60s or 70s, right? Um, so, so one thing that we saw from our experiment, which was done in adult rats, um, is that these adult rats, their brains still had enough flexibility that they could accommodate this new tissue, these new neurons. Um, it wasn't so stuck in its ways that it didn't know what to do with these new neurons. And so that is really... Um, you know, that, that gives me a lot of optimism because that suggests that 
we could potentially put new neurons into a patient's brain, an adult patient's brain, and that the adult patient's brain is flexible enough to accept these new neurons. Um, so that's probably one of the biggest things that, that we learned from the study is that, you know, it's not just uh, neurotransplantation, putting neurons into the, uh, a, a, a patient's brain. That's not just something for ch children, but it might work for adults as well. I think that's one of the biggest messages. Um, and in terms of what we can do in the future, you know, I, I think that the first steps were going to be limited a little bit by just the size of the tissue that we can transplant. I was said earlier, the blood supply, things like that. We're still working on that. But kind of the way I'm thinking about this, um, and, and, and I have to um, give credit to this idea to a Dr. Stephen Goldman from the University of Rochester. I met with him very early on in my career, and he, he brought this idea up to me, is that maybe we can think about these cortical organoids as processing units, processors, right? So one of the interesting things about the cortex is it's thought that there's just many, many of these processors that keep doing the same thing. And these are called cortical columns. Um, you know, th th there's still a lot of debate and, and, and research being done on, on cortical columns, but it's thought that cortical columns are kind of this basic processing unit of the brain. And it can be kind of used by the brain in different ways. So maybe when we are transplanting these organoids or tissues, what we're doing is putting all these blank processors into the brain and the brain can use it and say, oh, okay, well, these processors aren't being used for any other function right now. Let me assign it for these different functions. And then the brain can start restoring some of its, um, its, its normal function. And so I think that that's probably the way that we're gonna approach this first. It still weighs off in terms of translation, putting this stuff into, into patients, but that's going to be the idea first. We're going to put in multiple processors, these smaller pieces of tissue into the brain, rather than say we have a huge gap in the brain, we're going to just take this piece of brain that we've grown in lab and put it back in. Maybe one day, but to start, it's going to be a little bit simpler. What I take from this is that, you know, how everything is connected that here we, what you've done is taken a human brain organized, uh, organized, transplanted into a rat, and it's accepted it and integrated into and thinking that it's possibly its own 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 brain. So how cool is that? Uh, would Would you like to maybe talk a little bit more about the application part? You know, where do you? What are the areas? Because you know there are so many you know, problems, I mean, specifically stemming from the brain, you know, we have Down syndrome, we've got autism, we've got depression, and we've got stroke, and and, and the list yeah. is basically on and on. What's the low-hanging fruit, you know, which you think that you can, you know, take this out from the lab and into the market? Right. right. I, I think that the initial application of this type of strategy is going to be more for some sort of an injury to a previously working brain. So that is going to be like stroke. That is going to be traumatic injury. Um, I don't think upfront something like this is going to be the answer for autism or an answer for depression or something like that. Um, I, I think that those problems have other ways that might be more effective in dealing with them. But for something like stroke or traumatic brain injury, where you had a brain that was working to start, and then you lost part of it. Some part of the brain got lost. I think that replacing the neurons, replacing the tissues in those case, cases make a lot of uh, intuitive sense. 
what comes next for for you i mean uh, after doing this transplant on the right what comes next what's the next step yeah so you know th- this initial study that we did really opens up a whole bunch of other directions that we can consider um you know one of the biggest things that we don't understand very well right now is what controls what are the what are the variables that 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 regulate how this integration process works. Um, and, and the reason that that's important to, to understand is because if we do understand those different variables, then we might be able to manipulate those variables. And then we might be able to design other strategies to allow that integration process to happen faster. So, you know, fast forward in the future when we can uh, hopefully do this for patients, you know, hopefully we'll be able to say, it's not, well, we're gonna do this transplant, we're going to put these these neurons, these tissues into your brain, and then we're just going to see what happens. And it might take months and months and months, or maybe even years for you to have a benefit. Maybe we can have another strategy to say, we're going to do the transplant, but on top of that, we're going to do something else. And you're going to see some sort of a a good outcome much, much sooner, right? So that's why we really want to understand, uh, identify these different factors that might control how the integration happens. The other thing that that we are interested in doing is starting to look at can we you know we 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 put these organoids into the visual cortex the visual part of the rat's brain can we put them into other parts of the brain and and do we see something similar um you know it, it, it's kind of it, it is taking perhaps a step back and saying okay we need to understand we've we have a system that works but let's understand the system better and 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 know the ins and outs of that system so that we can expand the applications uh, when we're thinking about translating into patients. And, and you know, we, we might be thinking about, you know, do we need to consider um, other models, uh, other animals uh, that we're doing these transplants and, you know, getting closer to human translation? That's probably a little bit further off, but that it's also something that is a possibility. Are, are there any negative consequences you see arising? Because, you know, obviously there's the moral brigade, which is always there trying to raise up and say, oh, this is not right. You're trying to transplant a, a human brain organite into uh, a, a rat and possibly maybe it could be another animal and, and so on. Yeah. What, what are the moral and ethical, possibly those unforeseen consequences maybe that yeah. could arise? Is there, you know, you could talk about that? Yeah, sure. So, so you know, these are really important questions. Uh, you know, anytime you do something, there's always potentially some unintended consequences in science. Um, we try to do our best to think about these issues and and anticipate issues. And we actually published a paper, another paper in Cell Stem Cell, a couple of years ago, where we talked. The whole point of the paper was talking about the ethics of transplantation. Um, of organoids and other neural tissues. And, and you know, um, we really kind of went into detail step-by-step step thinking about this process. Um, the idea that we, w- you know, that we would somehow make these animals more like a human, I think is much less likely for a couple reasons. Um, first is that the, the, the neurons that we introduced into the rat brain, they weren't spread out throughout the rat brain. They were kind of just focused in the visual cortex. And, and you know, it, it's much more likely for 
neurons spread throughout the brain to have uh, uh, an effect on the brain rather than just one area. The other thing is we put into the visual cortex. And, and so, you know, what we should be affecting, if anything, would be the vision of the rat. And, you know, this is a bit tongue in cheek, but I'm not sure that our vision is that much better than a rat's vision, you know? Um, and the last thing is we did some calculations in this prior paper to kind of look at comparing um, the rat brain to the human brain. If we were to replace every neuron in the rat brain with a human neuron, it still may not be the case that that rat is able to think like a human, to, to talk like a human or things like that. It's just that there's not enough uh, neurons there to, to be able to do that. So I, I think that the, the likelihood that we are creating a humanized rat, so to speak, where they're a rat that has human features is very unlikely. That being said, it is something that we 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 think about and 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 you know we 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 do our best to guard against that particular that uh, that outcome. Um, you know, using animals in research, um, there 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 are many safeguards at this point. Um, you know, there 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 are many committees that review the work that we do, um, that that oversee uh, what's going on and 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 help us. Um, do our best to minimize any kind of discomfort of the patient and make sure that the results are worth the sacrifice of the of the animals. Um, and and so you know these are always things that we're thinking about actively. Um, and and certainly it's not something that we take lightly that that animals are being used for this research. Really, really appreciate you taking time and being part of the podcast. I think what you're doing could completely possibly upend the way we do healthcare in, in the next few years. Since you've been invested in the space, you've like really been at the forefront of the space. If you had to paint a picture of what regenerative medicine and possibly how brain organoid could play a role in healthcare, the future of healthcare, what would you have to say? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, it may be the case at some point in the future that, um, some point early in our life, we you know have uh, a blood draw that's performed, and um, stem cells are created, and different organs are are generated, and they're kept in some sort of a uh, you know a storage facility where you know if we ever have um, a problem where we need a transplant of this or that, then there is something available to us. Uh, if we ever get into a car accident, we have a brain injury, it's like, okay, well, you know, let's let's stabilize the brain injury, but then we have something that we can kind of order up and 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 fix you with this. Um, that we won't need um, organ donation. We'll have uh, a supply of our own organs um, available to us. You know, there's there's a there's a book um, by Kazuo Ishiguro. Uh, never let me go, which is really, really interesting because in this particular book, it's talking about um, uh, people who are who their, their only uh, purpose in life is to donate their organs to other people. Um, and, and so this is a Nobel Prize winning author, and and he wrote this very, very interesting book. And and you know that is not my uh, vision for the future. I don't think we'll need something like that because we'll have our own supply of organs. Like it'll be, it'll be off the shelf. They'll be available to us. Um, just whenever something happens, 
uh, we can just order it up and and it will be available to us and we we do not need um, we do not need to wait for someone to come forward as a donor. Uh, none of that will have to happen. There's not going to be wait lists for for transplanted organs, things like that that we have to deal with now. It'll be this is just available for you. Um, now obviously you have to think about okay, who, who's going to provide the resources for all that? And sure, that, that is potentially a problem. but um, what we've seen in science is, is that things that you know took a ton of resources uh, a little while ago are is is much easier now. So you know, sequencing the first human genome took years and years and years and billions of dollars and now you can do it for a couple hundred dollars um and and it's it's not that big of a deal right so who knows what's going to be uh, possible in the future where things become more efficient and and maybe it's the case that generating these stem cells generating these tissues and cells will become much easier and truly we will have these off-the-shelf cells and tissues available to all of us Thank you, Professor, for taking time and being part of the podcast. I think we're living in a fantastic point of time. Uh, the entire healthcare space is going to be completely upended. We're going closer to a point where we could possibly touch human longevity, where we could live longer, not just live longer, but healthier. We are also looking at possibly the opportunity of maybe like you mentioned regenerative medicine maybe you know point time where we could just take a specific blood draw and create our own organs and through these possibly organoids that we will create I, I think like you mentioned you know there there won't be a wait line for those people who are waiting for an organ or you know a specific neural condition or health condition and, and we'll be able to repair and reverse those, those conditions so we're living in superbly exciting times and, and you're doing a fantastic jo uh, job please please keep on doing what you're doing and to my listeners if you like what you see in here then please press the subscribe button and until next time see you guys bye bye thank you thank you